Hello, Grace family. What a great time of worship we've had already. I'm so glad that you're with us today and a part of this worship experience. You know, several days ago, we emailed a survey to our church family because we really wanted to get a better understanding of how you felt and thought about the subject of regathering. We had a great response. Some 1,270 of you finished that survey. Thank you for that. And one thing was really clear. Some of you are super eager to meet together again in our buildings for worship. Some of you are ready and willing to come back, but you have quite a few questions and concerns about that. You're kind of cautious. And another significant group of you believe we probably shouldn't regather until there's some kind of vaccine or when we are at least confident that we can regather safely. Bottom line, opinions are pretty much all over the board. Again, thank you for finishing that survey and letting us know how you feel. We hear you loud and clear. So before we dive into today's message from God's word, I wanna say a few words about what we're thinking as we get closer to regathering. We're seeing signs all around us in the capital region and beyond of, of things beginning to kind of open up again. So the question is, when are we gonna regather? As my recent update video stressed, we're not reopening because we can't reopen what never closed. Yes, our, our buildings have been closed, but thank God, thank God the church is not the building. The church is the wonderful people of grace, saved by the grace of God, filled with the Spirit of God. That's the church, and you are alive and well. If you've been paying attention, by the way, to the emails going out and the special video posts from our pastors and, and all the informational updates going out every week, you know that Grace Fellowship, by God's grace, has been knocking the ball out of the park. You've been knocking the ball out of the park with serving and ministering all across, across the Capital District and beyond in Jesus' name. Thank you for that, church family. And second, I would just want you to hear this from my heart. Our decision about exactly when to regather will be motivated by Jesus' greatest commandment, not by the First Amendment, okay? Hear that. The greatest commandments, of course, are to love God and love people, right? That's what Jesus, our Lord, taught us to do. Love God, love people. He said those are the greatest. And that should drive everything we do, friends. When we decided to cease gathering over two months ago, that decision was not made out of fear. It was made out of love. Our decision to regather is gonna be the same. Don't get me wrong, friends. We love, are you listening to me right now? We love our First Amendment rights. Thank God for those. But we will not demand our First Amendment rights immediately if, if doing so jeopardizes our witness for Christ. The Bible teaches we should always be willing to sacrifice our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. And third, exactly when we regather has a whole lot to do with how we're able to regather. If we were a church of 50 or 100 people, you know what? We'd probably be regathering a bit sooner. But as a church of thousands meeting at four locations 
there's some distinct challenges with that. When we do regather, we want it to be a safe and encouraging experience for everyone. So we're researching, we're, we're learning how we can best do that with, with social distancing and, and capacity restrictions in place. And we'll keep you posted. Trust me on this. We will keep you posted on progress on a regular basis on the question of when and how we'll actually start regathering. But in the meantime, until we can all come back together full force or close to full force, I urge you to consider doing what the early Christians did. The Bible says they came together in their homes and worshiped God. Some of you are already doing that with great joy. Now, I encourage those of you who are most vulnerable to use your best judgment and possibly stay home. But if you're not in a vulnerable population and you can invite some friends over or join friends at their place, please, please do so. It'll be awesome. You'll have a blast getting together with other brothers and sisters in Christ in someone's home. So watch the online service together. Enter fully into relationships. Enjoy robust fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me tell you something. If you thought, if you thought for a minute that church was all about traditions and boring rituals, you may just have your mind blown. The church is a wonderful united family, even in the midst of a polarized culture. We're able to demonstrate we can still love and care for people just like Jesus did. We can still give generously, we can still be faithful in our service, even when so many things are changing and in flux. And I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you from my heart, I just love that. I love that about this church family called Grace Fellowship. You get it. You get it. You know what the church is really about and you're showing that in tangible ways. So I wonder right now, as we transition to the message straight out of God's word, may I pray for all of us right now before we take a dive into the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can be a part of such an amazing church, so diverse, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of places in life, and yet the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've made us one in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're excited about regathering. We pray that you would speed that day, Lord, when we could do it safely in a positive and encouraging way. And Lord, in the meantime, may we experience robust fellowship together, getting together in homes and worshiping you and having a great time in the Lord. We're so grateful, Lord, that even through this pandemic, you were weaving a grand plan for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you for hearing that message straight from my heart today. You know, someone said, if you wanna make God laugh, <laughs> tell him your plans. I've heard that all my life, haven't you? It's kind of a funny little saying, and, and sometimes it, it may seem to be that way. But I want to be clear, that does not mean that God is against planning. 
Jesus said, no one starts to build a tower unless he first sits down and counts the cost. In other words, Jesus taught the importance of carefully laid plans. The book of Proverbs puts a huge premium on planning. For instance, Proverbs 20 says, make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. You could basically sum up the Bible's counsel on planning like this. One who fails to plan, plans to fail. And yet both the Bible and history give many examples of people who had carefully laid plans they never realized. In other words, the well went dry on their carefully laid plans. Moses had plans to enter the promised land, remember that? But the well went dry on those plans. David, the king, had plans to build a grand temple for God. But God said, no, no, David, you're, you're a man of bloodshed. Your son, Solomon, will get to realize this dream, but not you. And I wonder, how many of you have ever had some really well-laid plans, plans you prayed over, maybe even examined your own heart motives to be sure you weren't doing it selfishly, and you'd given it a lot of attention to, to the details of that, you sought wise counsel, and still in spite of all that, the well went dry on your carefully laid plans. It really happens, doesn't it? And I hope you're encouraged today to realize that it even happened to the Apostle Paul. Many believe the greatest Christian who's ever walked the planet. God had given Paul a fabulous plan. According to Romans 15, Paul said to the Christians in Rome, look, I, I, I'm, I'm planning to visit you on my way to Spain. His plan was to stop in Jerusalem first, give a gift of some money, which had been collected from some Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. They were Gentiles who were giving money for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were Jewish, and they were struggling through some very hard economic times. And after dropping off this monetary gift, Paul planned to travel on to Rome, meet all the Christians there, and then use that as a launch pad for further missionary journeys into Spain. That was the vision. That was his plan. But why? Why did he want to do that? What did he really want to accomplish? Well, he had two, two fantastic motives. First, he hoped that this monetary gift from Gentile Christians given to Jewish Christians, would strengthen the relationships between Jews and Gentiles because, mind you, the tension between these two groups was significant. And second, Paul hoped to start new churches. That was his game plan. Strengthen relations between Jewish and Gentile Christians and go off to Spain, a place he'd never been, and start new churches. That was his plan. And what a great plan it was. In fact, in, in speaking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, I'm going to read now straight from the book of Acts. He put it like this in Acts chapter 20. He said here, starting in verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And I love verse 24. Listen 
to what Paul said. However, well, th- by the way, this would be a great mantra or motto for every follower of Jesus today. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Oh, I love that. Now, when he mentions the hardships there that God had kind of forewarned him of, I think he's expecting he's gonna get beaten up a few times, maybe thrown into jail a few times. He was accustomed to that. But I don't believe, I don't believe for a minute that Paul expected to stay in jail for most of the rest of his life. It's kind of funny. Paul didn't think he had visited a town unless he'd seen the inside of the prison there. (laughs) So I think he's expecting hardship, but he believes God is calling him, and so he's going. And when he got to Jerusalem, things really, really went well at first. Let me read on from Acts 21, starting in verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see Jane. By the way, this is Luke, Dr. Luke, who was one of his missionary companions who's writing this. He says, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So would you agree so far, things are going spectacularly well. And yet, as you read on through the rest of this story in the book of Acts, here's what you find that soon afterwards, Paul is arrested and he's interrogated. And what follows as you read on and on is this whole series really of trials and speeches and trials and speeches as Paul remains under arrest and is moved from one place to another. And then, get this now, instead of going to Spain and planting churches, which was his dream, Paul spends virtually the rest of his life as a prisoner. There's a short little period in there where he's not in jail. But the vast majority of the rest of Paul's life, he's a prisoner, never able to go and plant churches again. And he finally ends up in Rome in the Mamertine dungeon. And he is ultimately, according to legend, beheaded by the command of Nero, the Roman emperor. Wow. You talk about the well going dry on your carefully laid plans. Paul had prayed. Paul had strategized and put enormous work into the plan. And keep in mind, this is a godly man. He's not a spiritual lightweight. He has awesome motives to bring God glory, and yet the well still goes dry on his carefully laid plans. So here's what I want us to look at for just a few moments now. I want us to think now about how wise people respond when the well goes dry on their carefully laid plans. But before we explore that, let's just acknowledge something. In fact, let's acknowledge a couple of realities that scripture and real life experience should teach us. First, first, let's acknowledge this, that you are going to bring some, hear me now, dry well experiences on yourself. What do I mean? Your sin, your disobedience, your stubbornness, 
you being you, me being me, and all of my sinfulness and stubbornness at times is gonna create in our lives problems and pain. Just count on it. Hear me, Jesus takes away the eternal consequences of our sin, but he doesn't typically, he doesn't typically remove the earthly consequences. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. For example, Moses finds himself angry at injustice and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster. That anger cost him big time. David sees a good-looking woman. He sleeps with her. Big time earthly consequences for that. Peter, the apostle Peter says, hmm, Jesus, you're talking about... uh, I don't think I know that man, Jesus. Peter, come on. You see, you will experience hardships that you bring on yourself. You will sin and make mistakes and getting right with God won't always, in fact, it will seldom take away the earthly consequences of that on earth. On earth, although God is forgiven, we tend to reap what we sow to a great extent. But second, here's the thing we need to acknowledge. You will have some dry well experiences that you didn't cause and you don't deserve. Oh, I hope you're hearing that today. I call this getting caught in the backwash of someone else's sin. It happens. And some of you are experiencing it right now. Some of you are in the middle of hardships that you don't deserve and they are not the direct result of your own sin. I'm glad that we can acknowledge both of those realities. But the question is, how do wise people respond when the well goes dry on their carefully laid plans? First, first, wise people. Is that you? Are you one of those people I'm talking about? Wise because of the word of God in your life and the spirit of God. Wise people, wise people tend to focus on the road ahead more than the rear view mirror. (laughs) Their number one question is, what's the next step, Lord? Not why me, why this, why now? I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're riding a wave up or crashing on a wave down, but I do know this. I do know this. The most important question you can ask today, this week, this month is, Lord, what next? When the well goes dry, wise people turn to God and say, what's the next step, Lord? You know, you can't get anywhere looking in the rearview mirror. And again, There is a time and a place to learn from our past. I hope you're hearing that. There's a time and a place to look back and learn. But our focus always needs to be forward. I know some of you are going through the pain of a difficult divorce right now. And if you're like most people, you probably spend some time casting blame, looking back. Why did he do this? Why did she treat me this way? And on and on. And on, the most important question is what next? Get your eyes on the road ahead. Some of you are going through an economic situation. It's a mess right now in your life. But whatever the causes of that, the most important question is, 
What's my next step, Lord? Some of you are having a relationship crisis in your life. Maybe you've been dating someone and you're thinking, this is the right person. I know it. It's all going to work out. And you're so pumped. And then out of the blue, out of the blue, the whole thing blows up and you're wondering why. But the real question is what next? If there's anything you hold on to from this message, I hope it's that phrase, what's my next step? Lord, because walking with God is a journey. It really is. Get your eyes on the next step God has for you. Get your eyes on the road ahead. There's a second thing about how wise people respond, though, when the well goes dry on their carefully laid plans. Second, wise people look for the open door of opportunity inherent in every crisis. Now, I've been told that the Chinese word for crisis is also the word for opportunity. I don't know any Chinese. And I've, I've actually had different Chinese-speaking people talk about that to me and try to explain, but it seems to be a little bit contradictory. But I know that is used in motivational speeches all the time. But whether it's true or not, I'll tell you this, it's true in life. It is true in life. In every crisis, there is opportunity, and wise people look for that opportunity. I'm not saying that within every, within every crisis, there's this wonderful opportunity of a lifetime. What I am saying is that in every single crisis, whether it's brought on by your own sin or brought on by God's plan or brought on by someone else's sin, I am saying that there's some opportunity to make the situation you're in today better. Oh, it may not be the ideal. It may not feel like the best, but if you ask the what's the next step question, there is an opportunity to bring honor to God, to serve God, to do his will, and to make the situation better. By the way, the Apostle Paul is a marvelous example of this. All the way along, as he found himself in jail and in tough situations, you know what? He's serving God. He's looking for the open door of opportunity. For instance, I, I told you he was in prison for virtually the rest of his life, and that's true, but he made the most of it. During this imprisonment, he wrote several letters we have in our Bible today, letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and First and Second Timothy. And in addition to writing scripture, he also shared Christ verbally. Remember that great section in Philippians 1 where Paul relates, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, tell me, that, that's not what you would expect, is it? You would expect that Paul's imprisonment would stop the advance of the gospel, but it only took it to more strategic places. 
like the very palace of Caesar. Paul kept on making more and better disciples in spite of the fact that the well had gone dry. So hear me today. Whoever you are, whatever you're going through, in every crisis, you can become bitter or better. It's a choice, really. In every crisis, there's an open door of opportunity that wise people look for. But third, and and finally today, when the well goes dry, wise people cooperate with God. Hear this. They cooperate with God to bring a redemptive purpose out of their difficulty. (laughs) You know, I hear people say all the time, Good always comes out of bad. That's a bunch of garbage. (laughs) Good doesn't always come out of bad. Good comes out of bad when we cooperate with God. Now that's the truth. But if you don't cooperate with God, all that's likely to come out of bad is more bad. Good comes out of bad when we get on God's program, when we cooperate with God, when we walk in step with him, when we seek his will and his way in our lives, that's when good comes out of bad. We've all got to love Romans 8, 28. What a promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And Jesus Jesus defined loving God this way. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So when God shows us our next step, our job, my job, your job, is to take it, to do what he's directing us to do. That's what I mean by cooperating with God. And when we do that, God can bring good out of bad. He delights to do it. He can bring a redemptive purpose out of any hardship. Here's what impresses me. As you read those final chapters in the book of Acts, even though Paul's plan of planting churches in Spain has been smashed you know what? It doesn't stop Paul. He keeps on doing the right thing. He keeps on cooperating with God. He keeps on loving his enemies. He keeps on sharing the gospel. Paul keeps on trusting God even as a prisoner. No, he never planted those churches in Spain as he dreamed of doing but he wrote letters to churches he had been to, and several of them are in our New Testament. He kept preaching and sharing Christ, and he kept trusting that God was weaving redemptive purpose through it all, through it all, as he kept cooperating with God and asking, what is the next step, Lord? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I don't know how my brothers and sisters feel right now, but I am majorly, and I mean majorly, inspired by your servant, the Apostle Paul. May his example inspire us to do likewise, to keep on trusting you, to keep on looking for that door of opportunity, 
to keep on seeking how you can bring glory to yourself and good to us and to others as we keep on cooperating with you. And Father, I, I just specifically want to pray for those that are really struggling as this pandemic lingers on. And though we have marvelous signs of things beginning to open up and we're excited about that, yet the reality is many, many are struggling right now. Would you, oh God, bring hope and healing and encouragement to their hearts? In this very moment, may they feel the presence of the Spirit of God working in their lives. And may they know beyond a doubt that you not only know who they are, but you've got a great plan for their life and you have never stopped working that plan out. Hallelujah. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.